Hi, everyone, and welcome to Education for Sustainable Democracy. I'm Brett Levy. This episode is part two of my interview with Judy Pace, professor of teacher education at the University of San Francisco. In this episode, we talk more about the ideas in her new book, Hard Questions, Learning to Teach Controversial Issues, which describes her detailed qualitative study of four teacher educators. In part one, we discussed the structure of the study and its major findings, including key strategies that teacher educators use to prepare new teachers to lead instruction on controversial public issues. Now in part two, you'll hear more about the challenges of this work and how contextual factors provide unique constraints and opportunities for teaching controversial issues. Thanks again to all of you, the listeners. I really appreciate your support and hope that you learned some useful tidbits from this show. You've been so helpful in spreading the word about this podcast, so please keep that going. Now, here's part two of my interview with Professor Judy Pace. It seems like contained risk-taking makes managing discussions of controversial issues more feasible, but could limit student engagement with issues, perhaps because it involves avoiding certain sticky issues. So contained risk-taking seems to be in tension, possibly, with teachers' goal of deep student engagement, because it might steer away from getting at those super close-to-home, emotionally-laden issues. I definitely understand this trade-off and the value of contained risk-taking, but how do you think teachers should navigate this tension? Thank you for that question. I think it's a really important one. And, you know, I felt ambivalent about this because ideally, you know, you would want to be able to explore the most significant issues that really matter for young people in a lot of depth. But I came to appreciate, especially in Northern Ireland, the need to play it safer. (laughs) It's not playing Mm -hmm. it safe completely, but play it safer. Mm -hmm. And Paula, one of my teacher educators in Northern Ireland made a really, really strong argument for this. First of all, she said that you're talking about the classroom. You're not talking about an overnight residential. In Northern Ireland, there's been a lot of work on taking students away for an overnight or a weekend on a residential Mm -hmm. and doing Mm -hmm. a lot of relationship building. And Mark Drummond actually was involved in a lot of that work, doing Mm -hmm. a lot of relationship building, building trust, community, and then being able to talk about emotionally charged issues. But in the classroom, that's just not realistic. Mm-hmm. Paula is a human rights scholar and activist. and She thought that it was really irresponsible to mm-hmm. potentially expose students' identities and mm. experiences in their families and have things get really raw. And then 30 minutes later, you're sending them off to French class. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So she was thinking about being protective of young people and also being really cognizant about the institutional limitations that we're working with in schools. And Mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I really respected that. And then coming back here to the U.S., I developed even more of an appreciation for that approach because obviously we've been inundated with how extreme political polarization has become in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's not mm-hmm. going away. You know, this is not yeah. a temporary deal. So I think that teaching controversial issues has become all the more urgent, but also all the more fraught, um, mm-hmm. all the more difficult. 
And I want to encourage educators to take up this work, but I think it's super important to be understanding of the potential mm-hmm. risks that are involved and to give them tools to contain those risks. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because otherwise we're setting people up possibly for being hurt. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking about teachers as well as students. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that in this political climate, contain risk-taking actually makes a whole lot of sense. And if we sacrifice deeper engagement, I think that's a trade-off that we need to be willing to make. Of course, Mm -hmm. it depends on the individual situation. And that's why teachers, you know, this is not about teacher training. I never use the word teacher training. This is about teacher education. Mm -hmm. This is about teachers really understanding how important their context is. And I think, I think teachers get that intuitively, but Mm -hmm. becoming really knowledgeable about the context in which they're teaching and taking that into consideration when they make their plans for how they're going to approach issues is super, super important because we want to protect them and we want to encourage them at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. It's a tricky balance that it seems like every professional educator is going to have to make for herself or himself. It sounds like Mark, your participant who did the residentials where students from different family backgrounds and religious backgrounds live together, was more willing to take greater risks. Would you say that? Well, it's interesting because that is part of his experience and he's very committed to doing that kind of work. At the same time, in his methods course, he was much more contained and Mm -hmm. he didn't expect all of his history teachers to take up this work in really deep ways. He understood that teachers varied in terms of their proclivities and their orientation towards doing this work. He believed that to go deep into controversial issues meant that you had had some experience with difficult dialogue in your own either professional life or personal life. He considered this transformational work and not everybody Mm -hmm. was cut out to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in the past, Mark had brought his pre-service teachers on field trips and overnight residentials where he really tackled some of this work with them. But the year that I did my study, he did not have the funding to do that. And so Mm -hmm. it was kind of more usual history course and citizenship course that I, that I observed Um, And within those courses, he certainly engaged his students in dealing with teaching controversial issues, but didn't go as far as he would if it were a special project where he were taking them away from school and spending a lot of time and having the opportunity to develop that kind of trust. Mm -hmm. That trust seems especially important. What do you think about the potential of developing trust in a classroom environment? in a way that could enable teachers to go there, to bring up these emotionally laden issues and still have students feel safe when they go to the lunchroom, even if they disagree with each other. I've been reading Peter Levine's book from a few years ago, and he writes that civic relationships are one of the foundations for healthy civic renewal and civic engagement in our society. And it seems like classrooms 
with people coming from various walks of life all together create a tremendous opportunity not only to discuss controversial issues, but to develop trust among people who might not typically interact. And I'm wondering about what you think about the potential of educators to create that safe space, you know, from your perspective as a scholar broadly, but also from your study. What about building relationships that aren't necessarily about the issues, but are just about who we are as humans and and what we share as just people living in this world, and then building from there? That's a big question. And it makes Mm -hmm. me think about a few different things. So I actually think again about my last book, The Charge Classroom, because Mm -hmm. um, that book is about trying to figure out why there's such a gap between educational ideals and real classroom practices. Mm-hmm. And this is part of why I really grew to respect Paula's point of view about going about teaching controversial issues in ways that were safer and more pragmatic. Mm-hmm. I just think that there's a vast divide between mm-hmm. what we as educational scholars hope will happen in classrooms and what the realities are. And mm-hmm. I think we do a real disservice to education when we ignore that divide. So mm-hmm. I would love to say that, yes, we should all strive to create those trusting relationships where students really get to know each other in deep, deep ways and hear each other's stories and empathize with one another and be able to cross the divide between our differences and diversity is this incredible asset. And we have so much to learn from one another. It's important to have those ideals. It really is. But I also know that it's very, very difficult to bring those ideals into fruition. And I don't want to blame teachers if they're Mm -hmm, not able mm -hmm. to do it. I would like to help teachers teach in ways that aim for really significant purposes, but at the same time, don't blame them if they're not able to pull it off. Mm -hmm. And so I think that what you're talking about takes really skilled teachers, even teachers who I would call charismatic, maybe not charismatic in a you know cult of personality sense, but charismatic in the sense that they really understand their students deeply and they're able to address their needs in ways that can pull a group of young people together. Not everybody can do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess... What I'm suggesting is that we set our sights maybe a little bit lower to make things more feasible. And this brings me back to one of the other questions, which is about supports and constraints, because it seems like time, which you mentioned earlier, is a really important constraint for educators trying to do anything, Um, you know, because we all enter the profession with goals about supporting learning for the next generation, learning that we believe in, and there's limited time. And there are a lot of students that you'd like to support. So what are some of the conditions in schools that you found were especially supportive or constraining of teachers having discussions of controversial political issues? Well, of course, you know, a timetable. And even with the pre-service teachers who were more successful, it wasn't like they had all the time in the world, but, you know, they Mm -hmm. had 70 minutes instead of 30 minutes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That makes Mm -hmm. a big difference. Mm -hmm. Or they could Mm -hmm. take two days instead of one day to teach a lesson. And then, of course, 
getting support from mentor teachers was really significant. Being given autonomy mm-hmm. and encouragement to experiment. School leaders also really make a difference. They're the ones who side on the timetable often, and they can build a culture in the school that supports, like I said before, diversity and dialogue across differences. And professional development, of course, is huge. So for the pre-service teachers, being able to learn from their mentors was really important and also getting some extra professional development. So for example, a couple of them benefited from facing history in ourselves, Mm -hmm. doing professional development with them. And sometimes it is about individual differences. There were Mm -hmm. some pre-service teachers who were much more interested in having open discussions about significant issues with their students and others who were more timid about it, just not oriented mm-hmm. in that way, more teacher directed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the factors really ranged from individual to institutional. And of course, there are the societal factors. So mm-hmm. in the Midwest, there were pre-service teachers who student taught in schools that had a very conservative culture. And they were told that they could not discuss policies that Trump was coming out with, like the ban on people coming from Muslim countries into the U.S., Mm -hmm. right? Teachers were told not to discuss the election. Mm, Uh, So, yeah. So Mm -hmm. that kind of institutional slash societal Mm -hmm. condition was was Mm -hmm. another factor. It would be great to just get a list of some of the issues that these pre-service teachers discussed in their classrooms that you think could be valuable for the audience to hear about. So one was the question of whether racism on the internet should be censored. Mm -hmm. And that was looking at the human right of freedom of expression versus um, the damage that racism does. And then another one was government's response to the Spanish flu in 1918 Hmm. and AIDS. Hmm. So that was prescient, to say the least. Mm Mm-hmm. And another lesson was about the Good Friday Agreement, which uh, is also really relevant right now because of the unrest happening in Northern Ireland. Mm. Now that Brexit has become a reality and there's been a lot of tension, um, even Mm -hmm. renewed violence on the streets. So people are even questioning whether the Good Friday Agreement holds. Mm. And other questions, should voting be mandatory was a sort of a practice structured academic controversy. And then this pre-service teacher went on to a much more ambitious lesson on who should be compensated as a victim during the troubles. So should people who were engaged in paramilitary be compensated for injuries during the troubles? And refugee policy uh, in the US was another question that was deliberated. Mm -hmm. And the question of free college tuition in the U.S. So those are some mm-hmm. examples of what the pre-service teachers and first-year teachers taught with their students. Mm-hmm. Great. That's very helpful. Some of your participants talked about the importance of tolerance and open-mindedness when guiding discussions. What do you think are the limits and boundaries here? Your participants said that hateful speech and bigoted views were unacceptable, which makes a lot of sense. You'll find no argument here. But it's hard to figure out exactly where the line is. For example, if a student supports a candidate that spouts bigoted views or supports a policy 
that arguably is grounded in prejudice, could that be considered crossing the line in a discussion of controversial issues? That is so tough. It's really, really tough. Mm -hmm. I will say that an activity that I observed that I thought was really interesting was in my Midwestern social studies course. What the students end up discussing in small groups is where do you draw the line between protected speech and speech that is not permissible in a classroom Mm -hmm. environment? Mm -hmm. And they Mm -hmm. look at, you know, statements that were made by Trump and also echoed on a wall on their campus at their university about building the wall Mm -hmm. and about Mexicans. And they really try to parse out what kind of speech targets certain groups and should not be permitted versus speech that is about policy, like maybe the claim that immigrants take jobs away from people who are native to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that may not be substantiated, but it's permissible and should be interrogated rather Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. off the table. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting to see them go through this exercise of trying to figure out the gray area. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of gray area and teachers do need to make judgment calls. Yes. It's a difficult one because if students support certain aspects of the refugee policy or the immigration policy under the Trump administration, then what are the principles underlying those policies? Every policy has arguably winners and losers. So it's a super gray area. So I appreciate your perspective there on not having an easy answer for that one, because I certainly don't. Again, not to sound like a broken record, but I would go back to this idea of contained risk-taking and what Mm -hmm. Paula would advocate So she would advocate getting students to talk about the multiple perspectives that are out there in our society, rather Mm -hmm. than what is your opinion. Mm -hmm. And at the end of a lesson, she would give students an opportunity to self-position, but Mm -hmm. it might not be done publicly. It might Mm -hmm. be private. Mm -hmm. That's controversial. I talked about this with one of the pre-service teachers who I interviewed in the Midwest and he thought that we really need to get students to formulate their opinions and develop their arguments and express them. That's really, really important part of citizenship education. Paula would disagree. Hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. would have different purposes around that. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a really great discussion among social studies educators. Yeah, I think so too. And it's a really big difference that you're drawing. And It's pretty striking because developing and sharing one's perspective seems like a central idea in so many aspects of social studies education and also in other subjects that teach about argumentation. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about what Paula's rationale was for having students keep their views to themselves. Doing it publicly might be too risky. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It might be too contentious. It might expose a student to harm. But I think what's really important is that I knew it was really vital for me to respect cultural differences. And Carol mm-hmm. Hahn has written about that because, you know, she's done so much international 
research on citizenship education. And mm-hmm. I really try to adopt that stance. You know, I'm here to learn about what these amazing educators have to teach me. I try to see what's happening in a given setting and understand how the participants understand what they're up to and what Mm -hmm. are the underlying factors that contribute to their understanding and what they do. So I was really focused on understanding how that context generated the understandings of the people that I was studying. Your final chapter brings us back to the persistent democracy divide. Unfortunately, high-track students tend to have more opportunities to experience good teaching practices with regard to discussions of controversial public issues. So what does your research tell us about how to address this problem? Well, first I want to talk about the problem. It's high-track, you know, students in selective schools. So in the UK, there are selective schools versus non-selective schools. And There are affluent students versus students who are not from affluent families. There are schools that are majority white versus schools that are more racially diverse. So this inequality runs across lots of different categories. And it's Mm -hmm. it's a serious problem. Lots Mm -hmm. of people have written about this. Joe Kahn and Ellen Middaw and Mira Levinson and Diana Hess and others. Importantly, the pre-service teachers that I studied did have the opportunity to work in non-selective schools as well as selective schools and in demographically different schools. Unfortunately, they said that teaching controversial issues, not all of them, but some of them, the majority of them said that it was easier to do in selective schools for Mm -hmm. a variety of reasons. So I think that detracking is something that we need to keep working towards. Making Mm -hmm. schools more racially diverse is something that we need to keep working towards. Mm -hmm. Deconstructing the whole hierarchy. Selectivity in schools is a controversial issue in Northern Ireland, Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. So continuing to kind of work on that. But then also preparing teachers explicitly and ongoingly to work with diverse populations of students. I think partly they felt like they weren't well enough prepared to teach controversial issues, some of them anyway, because in England, actually, I did have a couple of pre-service teachers who talked about how challenging it was, but that they were committed to doing it because that's who they had in front of them. They had kids from working class families who were not well prepared academically And they had many different academic levels in the same classroom. So they worked hard to address different needs. And so I think we just need to keep trying to do a better job at helping our students differentiate when that's appropriate, but also giving them the confidence in themselves and in their students, you know, Mm -hmm. that all their students are really capable of taking this on and that students are going to be engaged. Mm -hmm. by tackling controversial issues and being Mm -hmm. able to discuss them with their peers. And that this is not something to shy away from, but rather we Mm want to encourage it and see what students with different kinds of abilities are capable of doing. But that means teaching using lots of different methods and giving students diverse opportunities to demonstrate what they know and what they can do. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your very important work and for this great book that you've released. Thank you, Brett. 
Any final words or does that wrap it up right there? Well, my last thought was that discussion really is the centerpiece of doing this work and it is really difficult to learn how to do it. So Mm -hmm. we need to keep taking that really seriously and putting that at the forefront of what we do in teacher education. Well, thank you so much. You too, Brett. Thanks. Be well. Take care, Brett. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was part two of my interview with Judy Pace, professor of teacher education at the University of San Francisco. Her new book is Hard Questions, Learning to Teach Controversial Issues. You can find out more about the book and about Judy Pace at the links in the show notes. And if you missed part one of the interview, please check it out. And this is Education for Sustainable Democracy. I'm Brett Levy. There are new episodes each month, so please click the subscribe button or visit the show's website at www.esdpodcast.org to keep up with all the new episodes and to check out the older ones. That's www.esdpodcast.org. Also, I'd really appreciate it if you could tell one or two friends about the podcast. That's the main way that people learn about it. Thank you and have a great day.